You're listening to There Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Oh, good morning again, gentlemen. Yeah. Greetings, and listeners. Thanks for uh, joining us again. We're going to do another little uh, follow-up from last week on CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, where is uh, BMW had this cool little demo. Well, it sounds kind of cool, where it's a remote valet, where this is this is something they talk about. It's like, hey, you, you, you go to your fancy restaurant or something like that, and you don't want to hand your keys over to some go- somebody who's wearing a red vest. Uh, instead, you park your car there and then remotely the car will park itself. And you're like, that sounds amazing. And at first I'm thinking, wait, have they managed to figure this out? Now, what they've done is they've got somebody sitting in the Philippines remotely driving your car to a parking lot. There's a, I, I don't, who is asking for this? Like, I would rather pay some teenager in a red vest to go ahead and park my car because I can have a conversation with him. Well, don't forget we're talking about BMW drivers here. They're a special little class of uh, <laughs> snowflakes. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, obviously it would save time. It was it was kind of it, – it's it's scary to me for, I think, one reason, and I'll let Fred talk about that. But if you've got a guy to, controlling a vehicle from the Philippines, you're going to have latency. And you're, you're – it's I just don't see how they're going to be able to make that safe with remote driving. Keep in mind, I just made up the Philippines as a location. It's going to be a remote location, but I don't imagine it's going to be somebody, you know, within spitting distance of the restaurant you're parking at. Imagination is good. That's good. We like that. <laughs> so, Fred, what besides, I, I just imagine like most parking garages I've been in, there are these large concrete and steel enclosures. Radio waves don't really like concrete and steel so much. So do you see any problems with this setup? Well, it depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about the emergency response people, yes. If you're talking about the uh, insurance industry, yes. If you're talking about the drivers who are going to save, oh, I don't know, 30 seconds or so by trusting their car to somebody they've never met uh, with spotty connectivity, I suppose that's going to be just fine. I, I don't, are people really that busy that this is an important thing to do? Yeah, I, I I can't figure it out. Same thing with the Tesla. The Tesla had something similar where it parks your vehicle in a parking lot, which is just that is yeah. you know the height of laziness or you know <laughs> creature creature feature. You know, I don't understand why anybody would need to do that in a small parking lot where you know it's easy to park. You generally easy to park somewhere and find your way into the business, and that's thirty seconds here. The BMW system seemed more geared towards city environments where you're pulling up to a restaurant and you don't want to circle the block 20 times looking for a parking spot before you before you go in um, or you don't trust the, the the valet at the restaurant or the hotel or wherever you might be. So it's probably a little more of a complicated situation. I was I, when I was first reading the article, I was I, you know, I was a little concerned that what they were talking about was a self-driving type of parking function, but it seems like it's 
purely going to be a you know a remote you're going to have your own little remote driver that you pay a subscription to 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 carry out the parking of your vehicle um which as we every time we discuss something like that where there's a remote driver the latency issue comes up and seems to be somewhat of an insurmountable problem um well if, if latency is the only problem that's a good day you know yeah. if i were <laughs> if it were my car i would you know, want to check out the parking lot ahead of time to make sure there was a space for the car because I wouldn't want it aimlessly roaming around under the control of somebody um, whom I've never met, who I have never qualified. So how is this saving time? If you're going to check that there's a parking spot ahead of time, why don't, how are you going to do that? You're going to drop your car, walk around the parking lot, and then come back to your car and push the button for the automatic driver? This, uh, I don't I, I it's a wonderful thing, I suppose. And <laughs> it, it strikes me as being very antisocial, but I, I, you know, you're a BMW driver. What can I say? But I'm somewhat off a slight tangent from this. I see this as, as kind of what I see with a lot of use cases for self-driving cars is they say, hey, get into your self-driving car. You can go fall asleep and then you'll wake up at your destination. And in my mind, I'm like, that's the bus. Like that's a long distance <laughs> bus ride. Like I can go in there. Oh, I can watch movies. I can eat snacks. I can use a bathroom. It's great. I re the seats recline. Somebody else is driving it. Um, but hey, I'm old school, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. BMW must think it's important. They've spent time and money developing this, but it's a mystery to me. Yeah, so BMW drivers out there, yes, all kidding aside, if this is something you're like, yes, I want to pay someone remotely to drive my car, like, and they're set up like it's a video game system. So the remote drivers basically have high-end video gaming rigs to drive your car. Granted, they can't see 360 degrees like a human does in a car. They can see whatever display they're seeing. But if you think, that, hey, this is something I want to pay, I want to pay a monthly fee for this, Instead of, you know, randomly, you know, tipping some guy five bucks, uh, let us know. Please write in contact at autosafety.org. I'm dying to know. I won't make fun of you too much. Maybe just a little bit. Well, I'm a big fan of irony myself. And so uh, for a company that advertises itself as the ultimate driving machine, what they're really <laughs> saying is once you get to the restaurant, you're going to be sick of driving this damn thing. So I'll turn it over to somebody else. Uh, I. I think the engineers ought to talk to the marketing people and try to get a coordinated uh, approach. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, also out of CES, another German company called Mercedes, they have something called, it's a, what is the G, the, their electric G wagon is capable of doing uh, what they call a G turn, which they say should, must not be used on public roads. Um, and it's kind of like this, four-wheel turn so you can do this 720 degree super tight turn which is kind of neat and interesting i mean it's but one hey here's this feature you're paying a lot of money for you cannot use it on public roads i don't know who's clamoring for this again but you can see uh images and a video of this we'll link to the article in jalopnik where uh, is it just another is this just a big tail fin on a car from the 50s Yes. You know, I, I know what it, the only folks that are really buying these Mercedes G wagons are, I would say they're primarily the look at me set. So, 
Yes, those are the people who would be using a G-turn, which is also called a tank turn. Basically, it's just your vehicle is facing north, you hit a button, and the vehicle rotates itself to face south. Now, um, now I, you could see situations in which that could come in handy. It, you know, it prevent you from having to do a Y turn if you went down a one-way street on accident, right? Um, there could be uses for it, but, you know, the way that Mercedes has presented it, you know, with three or four of these vehicles with disco lights and dancing some way, um, kind of, I think, Kate, they don't really mention the the actual use cases for it. They're 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 advertising it for its you know flashiness um, and how cool it is that a car can do that. Um, but the real problem here is one that you know we've seen before and probably mentioned um, with the hum the new Hummer EVs um, is that they're they're putting a feature out and it's it's potentially unsafe if used improperly not nearly as unsafe as the hummers wtf mode which is a zero to 60 tank um in three seconds going down a, a public road which is concerning here you've got a vehicle that's basically just turning on its axis in the middle of a road um but you you can't tell people not to do something. They're going to do it. <laughs> you, you you can't put out a car and say, you know, do not use this on public roads. They're going to do it. They're going to use it there. And if these G-Wagons are connected to the internet and they know where they are, you can geofence these things. You can ensure as a company that it's not used on a public road and it's not expensive to do so. My question continues to be on these little weird performance features. This one's not as concerning as some of the others, some of the super speed launch modes that we see across the industry, particularly in a lot of the new EVs where they're going to be able to achieve just obscene acceleration, you know, in the middle of a city, wherever you want to do it, the, that button is there when those types of features should be, you know, actively prevented from being used when you're in an area where they weren't designed to be used. Um, and that's something that, we think is going to become more and more important. We've seen a lot of issues with the Teslas not being geofenced properly, turning autopilot or full self-driving on in areas where it's not designed for, tested for to be safe. And there continue to be a lot of these odd little features that are trickling out that manufacturers saying, well, well, we're going to put this in the car and you can use it at any time, but don't. <laughs> which I think that we all know that that humans don't really work that way. At least a, a lot of us aren't able to take those warnings in and and do the right thing. Yeah, the only modern feature people don't use in their cars is the AM radio. Because uh, <laughs> how do you even get to that? I have no idea. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's jump to some actual safety um, dire directly related to safety issues. Uh, here's an article we're linking to from Electronics 360, my favorite electronics magazine, uh, that talks about why automobiles need new nighttime safety systems. Uh, quoting from the article, simply put, data from the Federal Fatality Analysis Reporting System <laughs> shows that as cars have gotten bigger and drivers, drivers have become more distracted over the last 10 years, pedestrian fatalities have greatly climbed with over 75% of these deaths occurring at night. Uh, the New York Times had an, um, an article a couple months ago, maybe it was last month, talking about all of this increase in pedestrian death and, uh, well, I don't know, on safety. 
On safety, sure. Lack of safety? It's more dangerous to be a pedestrian today than it was yesterday. This yeah, particular article was interesting. It was written by a company that's selling thermal imaging systems. So th there's a bit of a bias there, but it does point out that there is additional sensory information that could be brought to bear for vehicle safety. And I think that the combination of the <clears throat> however limited thermal imaging systems that are available now with the other sensors that are on the vehicle could be used uh, very well to reduce the deaths at night, pedestrian deaths at night. Um, sensor fusion is probably a quicker approach than perfecting a system, as they talked about it in this particular article. But uh, yeah, there's a lot, lot that can be done. Yeah, and we've we've looked at thermal imaging somewhat, and we we've talked to a few folks in the industry about it, and you know it seems very promising. I mean, you're you're not just able to detect humans; you can detect. You know, you could build a car that never runs over a dog again. You could do a lot of things with this technology to, to detect deer, which cause all sorts of problems on our roads every year, and and other things that could you know really improve safety for vehicles. I think. One of the areas, and this article is, you know, pretty transparent about the challenges that are that are being raised here, not just with the cameras, but also with something we believe is that the biggest hurdle here, which is, you know, how do you classify, um, you know, having the sensor and detecting certain objects and detecting things is one thing, but how do you, on the back end, create software to classify those objects appropriately and make sure that you know, you're not slamming on the brakes at 75 miles an hour for a rat that crosses the road. We'll get to the rats later and, and why drivers <laughs> might not like them. Um, but there's there's a lot of things that 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 really need to go into this to ensure that we're not seeing some of the, the problems we see with other systems. Like we don't see that, you know, this is a system that could, if it doesn't detect something right, cause a phantom braking incident um, could create more safety problems than than it would solve unless these they're you know this, this the equipment's calibrated properly and it has some really good software that can um, distinguish objects from one another so that you're 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 getting things right. Is it an expensive system to add? Uh, you know, we we've heard. Figures about two around two hundred dollars, I think they were for, for these systems, and that was maybe two years ago. So who knows if they've come down? So that's or not. less than the but cost of I, formats. I, I think it's pretty well. You must have some bejeweled formats, <laughs> but it, it seems like it's within reach. I mean, two hundred dollars is a lot, really, when it comes down to it. To to for auto companies to invest in a technology, they really like to be under that, I believe, for some of these, but. Um, it's one that could really make a difference. And it's one that it, I think, and, and it, this has been one of those areas where, you know, with, with automatic emergency braking, we've seen a lot of problems and challenges at night for these systems to detect um, other vehicles and particularly pedestrians and low light. And, you know, if a system like this is, you know, cost, if it, if it, if the, cost is there I mean, if you can get it in there at a point where it can be put into all the vehicles at low cost then it makes a lot of sense to solve that problem the only issue there is that 
the NHTSA is probably going to be hesitant to specify that companies use a specific technology. They're, they try to remain somewhat um, tech neutral in their rules. So I, I don't know if they will require specifically this infrared or thermal camera technology, but they could, you know, set set up a rule that requires vehicles to perform at levels that maybe only a um, thermal camera could produce. But who knows how that's going to play out? It's that's going to be in part two of the um, AEB rulemaking by NHTSA. I don't think they're going to address that issue in the rule that we hope is going to come out in a couple of months this year. Well, let's continue talking about automatic emergency braking. Uh, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, uh, they talk about it would be great if these systems could detect large trucks and motorcycles better. Uh, front, crash front crash prevention systems aren't as good at preventing crashes with large trucks and motorcycles as they are crashes with cars. Two new studies from IIHS show. Uh, which, I mean, the motorcycle part I can understand because it's a relatively narrow um, object and some of these systems aren't, their field of view is not that great. But a truck is the one I don't understand. These things are massive. Like, how yeah. are they missing a truck, Tesla? Well, you, people say the same. Yeah, exactly, Tesla. I mean, you, you say the same thing, but then, you know, Teslas are going under semi. I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know if it's the height. Uh, of the truck maybe there's you know maybe these systems have been programmed you know traditionally to detect cars only because you know 10 years ago when they started building these systems it was really thought of as a way to prevent crashes between vehicles rear end crashes it's it's over time it's developed to where we want the technology to address the pedestrian issue which is a little more difficult and we want a broader range of vehicles covered. So that would be motorcycles and heavy trucks and anything really. We, we want to detect any hazard in front of the vehicle trains. It doesn't matter what and, and slow the, and, and slow or stop the vehicle when necessary. Um, but it's important here because if you think about the, the, there's a vehicle that needs to sense something in front of it. If it, if it's a, if it's, if it's a motorcycle that's missed, you're going to have a far higher chance if, if that motorcyclist is not detected of seeing a death or a serious injury because you've got a car crashing into the back of a motorcycle, um, which has relatively little protection. And also, if if you're not picking up the heavy trucks, then the car is going to be presumably sliding underneath the rear of that truck which is is behind a lot of the fatal rear end crashes we see so um these may be while while they may happen less often than the car to car scenario the risks and the uh, potential injury or the outcomes involved are are much worse in these circumstances so it's very important that as NHTSA finishes up its AEB rule that it addresses these situations because they are two situations where we see, you know, a lot of carnage on the roads. When are these AEB rules supposed to be finalized? Well, they put out the um, rule, the the notice of proposed rulemaking last year, and that's been commented on. And, you know, at some point this year, it, it it's going to be finalized, hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later, because the later you get in, in an election year, 
the better chance that an incoming administration is going to kick a rule out, essentially. Um, an incoming, you know, I would just if you have an incoming, you know, Democrat administration next, that rule is most likely going to stay as is if if it's if it's put out, you know, right before the new administration comes in, say it comes out in October, November, there's a chance that if a Republican administration comes in, they're going to say, whoa, we don't want we don't want any of this. Throw it out. We're going to start over. Um, and, you know, it, it happens both ways. NHTSA did that. The, the the nits under the Biden administration did that to at least one or two rules that the former administration was trying to put into effect when they came in. So it's something that that if the sooner the rule gets out this year, the better chance it has of staying in effect. Yay. Let's uh, all try and make automatic emergency braking better because from personal experience, eh, it's yeah. OK. It works. I mean, look, the, the the good thing about this study and, 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 and one thing it showed is that, yes, you know, there's a 53 percent reduction here in rear and crash weights with passenger vehicles. There's a 38 with um, heavy trucks, 38 percent reduction there and 41 percent with motorcycles. That's just not high enough. You know, we, we want to see 99 percent, 100 percent there if possible. I doubt it. But, you know, as close to perfect as we can get. Um, and that's that's it's working right now. You know, IHS looked at 160,000 crashes in part of this study. And, you know, that's that's good news. That's really good news. I want to remind our listeners that there are no rules in place right now for automatic emergency braking. So the benefits that Michael just talked about have been were significant, but they have not been as a result of any stringent rulemaking or any standardized tests by the government or any way of qualifying which are good and which are bad. So there's a lot of room for improvement and where we are now is not where we should be. Yeah, and I think we'll see that improvement once we have some standards in place. When when you don't have the discrepancy between one manufacturer and another, they have to meet certain similar standards. Plus there's some things in the rule that are that are really going to help out with some of the problems we've seen with automatic emergency braking, like with phantom braking and other issues. Mm. So I'm going to ask you guys a question. Fred, what's the scariest thing you've ever done in a car? I can't remember her name. Uh, I, I, well, I don't know. I guess to be G-rated, I would say the time I spun out in a Volkswagen bug going down a hill uh, with a car full of all um, high school students who I had encouraged to skip that day. That okay. was pretty bad. Okay, Michael, what's the scariest thing you've done on a car? You know, I'm having a hard time fi finding, figuring scary out. I mean, there's a correct answer to this in your book. Fred's wrong. Fred's close, but not quite right. Michael, come on. You know, I've I've driven in some hairy situations before where I probably would have been better off not being on the road in storms and otherwise. But I've been fortunate not to be in any significant crashes or, you know, I've had a couple of situations riding with other people where they're driving, put me in fear of my life. But um, no, I don't know what the obvious answer is that you're well, going Kind of close there. The scariest thing both of you have done and I've done as well is 
teach a teenager how to drive. (laughs) Come on, think about it. And uh, this is pretty neat. There's an article we're linking to from the Wall Street Journal, whereas it's researchers at Children's Hospital Philadelphia built a virtual driving assessment, uh, essentially a realistic car simulator, and found that it can accurately predict crash risk in newly licensed drivers. Why did the hospital do this? Because driving is one of the most important healthcare issues for teenagers. I love this idea. Um, the article talks about some of these kids they got behind there and they killed some pedestrians. I'm much happier to have them kill them in a simulation uh, than in reality. And if this could be a, a good little training step, I I think, you know, I'm all for it. It would uh, make me breathe slightly easier when putting my teenager behind the wheel. Yeah, I think I, it's I, a great idea. My, my uh, granddaughter is learning to drive right now in the Philadelphia area. And uh, they've looked for this and have been un- unable to find it. So it sounds like a good idea, but it's not yet deployed in any meaningful way. Yeah, and I, um, Children's Hospital of Pencil- uh, Philadelphia, or we always call it CHOP, they've been behind a lot of youth and child safety initiatives over the years. So this is the most recent one. And this is this one's really interesting. It, they took, it looks like they've had this simulator going since about 2017, so about six years ago. And they went back, what they did basically was went back and looked at the records of all of the kids who had, and teens who had gone through this program and then tracked their um uh, accident history on the road as they drove through their first few years matched that up and concluded that yeah you know this system worked we were able to identify you know the 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 good kids or the kids who who didn't have that many problems had a 10 percent lower crash rate than average and the folks who in the um in the simulator didn't 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 do very well and were the high risk candidates they had an increased uh, chance of being in an accident by by about ten percent. So, it's something that you know looks like it could work and maybe give give some parents a little peace of mind as they put their children on the road. I doubt it's going to help them lower their insurance a whole lot, though. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. Yeah, the insurance I understand, <laughs> but I love this because I think about it from like you know no one puts you know a pilot just right behind the the controls of an Airbus A three thirty and says go for it. No, they're logging a ton of simulator time ahead of time before before they let them out on the <laughs> out on the the airways, the airways, the skyways, um, the roadways. The ro- well, they don't really put a lot of airbuses out on the roadways. Um, kind of defeats the purpose. But I'm all for this. I think this is a great idea. Um, listeners, if you're for this too, let us know. Uh, let's go to um, you know something uh, a little grosser now. You guys want to talk gross? Let's talk about rats again. We've talked ah. about this before where rats are eating people's cars all over the place. Is it the soy plastic wiring? Because, you know, rats, they're they are generally very, you know, health-based, self-conscious. They're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, I got to gnaw anyway. And, I, you know, that petroleum-based wiring insulation, not really my thing. I, I've become vegan as a rat. So, oh, you got soy wiring? Another uh, article from the Wall Street Journal uh, talks about this poor guy in in New York who his car keeps getting eaten by rats. Um, people go crazy. They're putting hot sauce all over their cars and they're wiring every day. They're trying to move the location of their car. 
bars of Irish spring in the cabin. I don't understand it. Uh, they even suggest peeing next to your car to prevent the rats from doing this. But I'm like, hey, I mean, at what point do you just like, I have no dignity anymore and just let the rats win? What is, do we know what's actually happening here? No. Right. Well, no. I mean, we. I, I think we kind of do. I, I think we kind of do. We kind of got at it when we discussed it before is that, you know, those little suckers will chew on anything, right? And they don't care. And, you know, they, they get in your engine for warmth sometimes and they look up and there's who are and they say, hey, I need to chew because I think it was that, you know, that. I think it was the rod rodentia was the the family or the order of animals. They include squirrels and rats and all sorts of things. And in order to keep their teeth sharp, they're constantly gnawing on things. Um, their teeth, I think, their teeth grow throughout their life, and so they they kind of constantly have to gnaw on things to keep their teeth in shape. And so wherever they are, whatever whatever wires next to them, whether it's soy or rice or whatever you're making out of, they're probably going to gnaw on it. So. I mean, the, the guy in the article, though, I mean, he he really went goes to extremes. You know, he he doesn't park in consecutive spots like he makes sure that his car is constantly a moving target to avoid to avoid these little critters. So but they hide they, in the they, article they, is, is that his car is actually the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. No, it's not. I mean, he has really had to make some lifestyle changes to to avoid these suckers. So it's it's you know it looks like it's probably if you're in a, you know if you have a house and you have a garage it, and and you you know you you have decent pest control you could probably avoid this issue. But if you're driving around the city and there are trash cans and restaurants and you know a higher population of rats than you might encounter in other areas, then it can be a real problem and it's a problem not just for drivers it's a problem for insurance companies because they're covering some of this damage um and it's you know it's it's a problem all around and i don't know and i don't know that anyone has figured out a a really good way of solving this one other than maybe putting wires in places where they aren't accessible to rodents, which ultimately is going to cost more and is not, you know, an ideal solution for manufacturers to deploy. And they you know, would probably have to pass the cost on to consumers. But, you know, these these can cause safety issues, you know, not, especially when we have more electronics going to cars, more wires. It makes you wonder if they should start protecting those wires with some type of, you know, covering, whether it's metal or Kevlar or something else that's impervious to rodent teeth. Well, I think that the companies are now providing optional services for, you know, like we talked about earlier, the remote parking services. I think it'd be a natural extension to just go with some people walking terriers around the street. Uh, <laughs> terriers are really good at this. And I think it's minor subscription, modest subscription fee. For you know, some students. This guy's a professor in New York, and be a good work study program to you know have students walk terriers around the neighborhoods. I think there's a lot of potential there. Solve a lot of problems at once. Uh, employment. You know, people say that there's no jobs for kids. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, um, and terriers are cute little dogs, and I I think there's a natural natural fix for this. So uh, terrier dog walking slash uh, anti-rat patrol. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, you got my vote. I'm on board. Uh, all right. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you guys remember Dieselgate? Of course you do. This is when Volkswagens like 
hey, let's go put our cars into environmental testing or whatever for emissions testing. And when we know it's there, let's uh, turn on some software to make it look like everything's good. But when you're actually out on the road, <laughs> roll coal. Well, Cummings, Cummins, Cummins. Uh, they make, uh, oh man. So they make diesel engines for trucks, among other products. We'll pay a, a record Clean Air Act civil penalty of $1.675 billion. In a lawsuit brought by the U.S. Department of Justice, the EPA, and the California Air Resources Board. Just like Volkswagen, they did the exact same software defeat process. It's like in more than 630,000 Ram 2500 and Ram 3500 pickup trucks. So, hey, you want to get your diesel truck certified for uh, you know emissions testing? Well, our software knows it's being tested, and we'll put on the clean zone. When you go out on the road, ha! Burn, Earth, burn. Why are these maniacs doing this stuff? Why? Is it because the cost of doing business? I'm a little, I'm at a loss somewhat on this one. I mean, they they did this throughout the period when Volkswagen was doing it, but then continued to do it even longer. You know, Cummins isn't admitting any guilt here, even though there is a software program embedded in the system they created that, Essentially, what it does is it fakes out the emissions test. The emissions test is plugged in and the the vehicle switches over to a different mode where it it performs in a way that that makes the emissions look all good and dandy. And there's... and then as soon as you leave the the emissions test facility, the vehicle switches back into the mode. I mean, there's no way they didn't know about that and design that. And they're still not admitting guilt. Maybe that's because they're trying to protect some of their uh, execs from going to jail like some of the Volkswagen execs did. Um, but the fact that they're saying, you know, they say they have seen no evidence that anyone acted in bad faith and does not admit wrongdoing. I mean, that's sheer bullshit um and you know they're they're essentially just paying off paying their way or buying their way out of this one um i don't like this at all yeah so they have to pay not only a 1.6 billion dollar fine which is uh 1.6 reasons of guilt admitting to guilt uh but then they also have to repair and recall all of these engines which you know we're talking more than 600,000 of that so that's got to cost a little bit more and i just wonder if you know is this literally the cost of doing business? Was it cheaper for them to do this than to create something correctly? No, that doesn't make any sense at all. This is just yeah, assholes assholing. Yeah, there's no way it could be any cheaper now. I mean, I'm assuming, though, that the repair is going to be relatively simple software fix. So it's not like the repairs are going to bankrupt them anyway. Right. We commenting out a line. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, how are we feeling with, uh, about uh, Tau time? Tau time. <laughs> Tau, Tau time. This week, Tau time this week, we're going to cover a lot of things all at once. We've got a bunch of interesting articles uh, together. One is about uh, different, well, basically the coverage is going to be about uh, different alternatives. Oh, no, not different, just alternatives to lithium in EVs for battery power. And, uh, you know, Microsoft says they have, we have this cool AI program that did this massive search, and they found an alternative to lithium. And if you read the article, the alternative is uh, lithium. <laughs> There's something called flow batteries, which you can kind of fuel up your battery, which sounds kind of cool. But, you know, I'm just making things up. I don't know what uh, Mr. Perkins is going to mention, so go for it. 
You've now entered the oh, Dow Well, thank you for the introduction. It was something. So the uh, article is titled Unlocking a New Era of Scientific Discovery with AI. How Microsoft's AI screened over 32 million candidates to find a better battery. And then they talk about how important this is because of the restrictions on procuring lithium and it's scarce and environmentally destructive and all those good things. Um, as you read through the article, though, it turns out that these materials they selected after screening a half a million potential candidates all include lithium. So I think there's a disconnect somewhere between their PR department and their engineering department. This no. is actually a fascinating article. Um, they talk about using AI to screen these different materials and the different analytic processes that support it. It turns out that it's not the kind of AI that we've been discussing before, which involves a lot of machine learning by people sitting places saying pictures that, yes, that picture includes a cow, for example. Uh, and this AI, it's really designed to simulate the benefits of quantum computing because it's a really brute force approach using thousands of GPUs, uh, graphical processing units dedicated to this task to sort through a lot of information using rules that are being generated by human beings to filter the information. Um, so it's, yes, it's kind of AI, but AI doesn't have any official definition, so they can stretch things a lot. So this is, this is really a lot more about the potential for high-speed computing. And like so many other articles about uh, AI, it mixes the aspirational with the actual in very clever ways to say that, well, we can do this today. That means that in the future, all these other wonderful things are going to happen. Um, it's it's actually a really interesting article because what they've done is they've gone in and they've simulated the actual electron densities of individual atoms in small samples of uh, crystal structure to look at their chemical properties and how these can be used to improve the electrolytes that are in batteries, uh, in particular solid-state electrolytes that could be used in future batteries. And they go through the process and talk about all the different things they do. And I don't understand all of those things in detail, of course. I don't have a PhD in chemistry. But it's really neat work that they did. It's just that it's packaged in such a way that it's really uh, misleading, I think. I also note that two of the authors of the paper they reference are, in fact, Microsoft employees, <clears throat> which may have given it a bit of a bias. Still, the work is really good. They've done, you know, they started off using a hundred, you know, half a million potential candidates, sorted through them in different ways, and it came up with one that they're actually building in the laboratory. So far, they've got some powder that they're testing to determine what the chemical properties are and what the uh, electrochemical properties are, which is even more important to them. But it's interesting that it's, it's also misleading. I don't know why they're are having so much urgency to show the value of high-speed computing. Um, sales, anyway, baby. Go ahead. It's all about selling stuff. Come on, check yeah. out our cool stuff. Well, don't yeah. Read the, I guess don't that's read a, the fine point. And trying to tag it to current um, popular items, I guess, in the press. 
But uh, anyway, so in the future, everything will be better. And some of these materials that they processed um, may, in fact, have some tremendous benefits, but we'll wait and see. It's a demonstration project to show that it could happen. Interesting, though, that because of the limitations on the study, which are significant, there may well be a lot of other candidates that they tossed out due to their screening process um, because they do not have a big base of chemicals that they can use to train the AI to pick out all the potential strong candidates. So they're really imposing a human bias on it with the filters that they put in. Um, very complicated calculations underlie this, so it's 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 a really nice project. But um, you will not, as a result of this next year, be able to buy a car with a solid electrolyte that's based on this process. They make an estimate that they've speeded up chemistry by what? A factor of 2,500 or something like that. Um, it's a combination of scientific expertise and AI, I'm quoting now, the combination of scientific expertise and AI <clears throat> that will compress the next 250 years of chemistry and material science innovation into the next 25. Well, that's quite a claim. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't think that's true. That's kind of like saying that the invention of the slide rule will improve mathematics by a factor of 100. Eh, maybe. <laughs> But uh, not too many people using slide rules anymore. So interesting article. I encourage people to read it, but take it with a grain of salt because the people who wrote the article are not the people who did the research. And uh, there's a big disconnect there, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, it seems like, you know, when I read the article initially, I was thinking that, you know, we're getting rid of lithium. We've got a way to get rid of lithium in batteries and some of the drawbacks it has. But uh, after listening to you, Fred, not so much. <laughs> well, the the final material they came up with has what the, uh, has both lithium and sodium in it, so it has two ways of allowing ions to migrate through the electrolyte rather than just one, which is the lithium ion approach, right? So you've heard talk about sodium batteries, you've heard talk about lithium batteries, you've heard talk about sulfur batteries. What they're trying to do here is say, okay, if, if one is good, two has got to be better. So the material they come up with has both lithium and sodium ion transfer channels in them. Hopefully that'll make the batteries much better, but they're a, a very long way from producing even a first prototype battery that uses this candidate material. So from an auto safety perspective, just remind listeners or educate them on what is the problem with lithium? Oh, well, from the auto safety perspective, the problem with lithium is that it's used in a um, electrolyte matrix, which is liquid and is also flammable. And so when there is either a manufacturing defect in the battery itself, or there is a mechanical damage to the battery case, you can have a self-igniting fire that does not rely upon oxygen to burn, so it's kind of like rocket fuel. Uh, makes it very difficult to put out and also is uh, creates a lot of toxic gases due to the partial and uh, uncontrolled burning of the electrolyte material. Uh, very hot fires, and of course that sets fire to other things in your car and sets fire to your house and you know all those kind of things. So, so those are all bad. Now the numbers of 
cars that have catastrophic battery fires, as far as we've seen, are not significantly higher than the number of cars with gasoline engines that have catastrophic fires. But still, the hazard is there. Um, the, the fires can start spontaneously. They can reignite days after the original fire burns out. So there are those problems associated with uh, lithium-ion batteries. And people are finding out that if they're not really carefully made, as in the case of low-cost electric scooters, um, they have a tendency to, to burn. And many fires in New York City um, have been caused by this. So those are the problems associated with lithium, okay. as well as the industrial problems of just getting the lithium out of the ground and all the, you know, the environmental degradation associated with extracting the lithium. So it's, it's not... Uh, it's not a warm and fuzzy material. Right. Okay. So uh, we also have another article uh, from IEEE about flow batteries. Um, and this seems like it's, you know, it's still your electric car, but instead of plugging it into charging it, the idea is that you'd actually go to something similar to a gas pump and you'd pour in nanoparticles or something like that to charge your battery. Nano. Nanofluid. Nanofluid. Yeah. So this is a pretty nifty technology, actually. Um, so batteries run down, and when batteries run down, they deplete the electric charges in the electrolyte. That's what causes the batteries to run down. So in this technology, rather than recharging the battery, they replace the electrolyte with a new electrolyte. So they pump the old stuff out and pump the new stuff in, and off you go. And it could have a lot of it could have a lot of uh, benefits, but like hydrogen, for example, there's no infrastructure available now for distributing this stuff. There are no cars that that use this stuff, and I think that the authors of this article have glossed over a lot of the environmental problems. They've said, for example, if it spills on the ground, you just sweep it up and away you go. But a problem with nanoparticles is that. They're really small. They're less than a micrometer in diameter. Micrometer is one millionth of a meter. So it's there are a thousand micro, microns in a uh, in a millimeter, just to give you an idea. It's really small. It's like the size of bacteria. Because the nanoparticles are really small, they can slip in between cell walls. They can permeate through cells. They can lodge in your lungs. Um, there's a lot of things that happen with nanoparticles. In fact, the diesel emissions of nanoparticles are one of the primary reasons for California to push hard on getting electric trucks in the Long Beach area to try to get that uh, pollution source with, again, nanoparticles and submicron particles away from the people in that neighborhood who are suffering a lot of asthma and cancer problems because of that. So th there's a long way to go in this. It is, it is promising, but like... Hydrogen, for example, it requires a completely new distribution system and the vehicle's uh, delivery systems to handle this new fuel. So considerable hurdles yet to come. But it is a neat technology. Replace the electrolyte instead of recharging the batteries. And uh, good, for good, clean fun. Chemists are busy at work and good stuff will come out of this. So we can just pour Gatorade into my car in the future is what you're telling me? Just dump the old Gatorade out, put the new Gatorade in? What did uh, what did Doc say? He needed <laughs> cans to put into the into the car. Back to the Future. I can't remember his exact words, but yeah, something like that. Okay, in the future, it'll be better. 
Yeah, no, he had a fusion master and he was throwing like banana peels and stuff. At yeah, the yeah, the yeah. First movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, I yeah, love really that. <laughs> that that's a great one. Hey, but if the you future need... came in. The future came and went, and we still don't have that. So, <laughs> hey, hey, listeners, if you enjoy this, consider donating. Go to autosafety.org and click on donate, 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 donate. Uh, and with that, let's jump into our recall roundup. How's that sound? That sounds great. All right. So this. Can we week, have that roundup wait, in a piggly wiggly parking lot? Would that work? Hi. Uh, Ooh, a roundup. You know, I, I, uh, I. That's the kind of roundup. A, a, <laughs> only if we buy products from Monsanto. Um, I, I still haven't been to a Piggly Wiggly. I, I want to. You know, I, I once I took a class to. on retail, and we talked about Piggly Wiggly. Well, I mean, you're going to have to leave the the frigid north to even encounter one. I don't think I start seeing them until. I want to say Alabama, maybe the Carolinas, somewhere in there on my on my journey south. Yeah, well, the thing is, I don't have to leave the frigid north because soon it'll be the tropical New York. Uh, come to the <laughs> beautiful Caribbean beaches of Manhattan. I, we're talking nonsense now, mainly just me. All right, recall roundup. We're going to start off with Volvo, um, a rare entrant into the recall roundup. 17,409 vehicles. This is the 2024 Volvo XC40. It is a hybrid electric. Um, this is a software issue. Um, there, the the software pretty, failed yeah. to warn an approaching driver their intentions to turn or tr change travel lanes, increasing the risk of an accident. Wait, yeah, that's <laughs> called a broken a broken turn signal. <laughs> okay, because I was like, this is huh. it's failing to to let them know their intentions. This is this is some high end high end stuff in this car. Just a broken turn signal. Basically, they they got reports that just indicated issues with the left. It's just the left rear turn indicator as well. So the the left rear turn signal wasn't working right. They got four reports, no crashes or anything, but they went in and said, "Hey, we need to do a fix here." And so it's going to be a software update, and it's going to be an over the air release. They're just not quite sure when it's going to be coming to you. It says that they're going to have new software entered introduced you know, before Christmas of 2023. So maybe um, they're, they've already put it into new production. So maybe they're getting that update out pretty soon here for owners, but essentially it's a left turn signal didn't work and now they're going to fix it. Or they should just be like UPS drivers and don't make left turns, you know, yeah. refigure re out your map. Uh, next one we have is from lucid. Wait, lucid. Come on. They've never recalled a vehicle ever. Oh, wait, I'm kidding. They've recalled all of them multiple times. Uh, this is 2042 vehicles, the 2022 to 2023 Lucid Air, which I think costs a half a million billion trillion dollars. Uh, failures in their early version of their high-voltage coolant heaters supplied by Webasto. Uh, the HVC8 supplies warm air for both cabin heat and defrost capabilities. Uh, the lack of defrost capability poses a risk. You know what also poses a risk? Buying a Lucid. Wait, <laughs> is that too hard? I And, you know, look, before Lucy, I was all gung-ho for Lucid. I thought, this is pretty cool. I mean, I would never be able to afford one, but I liked their approach. And it turns out it's just been smoke and mirrors for $100,000 plus. Yeah, this one's, this one's an issue because it's it looks like they are what they're doing here is 
you know, they say, oh, we've got this problem. We're going to recall it. But they're saying that essentially owners are going to have to have the failure occur before they're going to replace the um, component. So that's kind of mind boggling to me. And I think it shows how new loose it is to this industry and to NHTSA. Um, that's not something that typically happens with recalls, right? Recalls are a, a um, unreasonable risk to safety. And so a typical recall corrects the problem before it occurs here lucid has constructed this and i'm not even sure if nitsa look at this one close enough before they put their rubber stamp of approval on this one but lucid is saying that what's going to happen is when the failure occurs it's going to send a message to lucid who's going to and tell the owner they need to contact lucid for a replacement versus just saying <laughs> Hey, we're going to replace all these and make sure this problem doesn't occur. They're saying, "Hey, we're going to wait for this problem to occur and then have the put the burden on the owner to reach out to us to replace the part." Is I don't like this. <laughs> I, I don't like this at all. I don't. I, if 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 a lot of manufacturers start trying to pursue this type of of remedy, we will be screaming about it from the uh, mountains, the hills, wherever they are, where, whatever makes our voice louder. Because it's just it, it's backwards, you know. You, you need to be fixing a safety risk uh, and addressing it before it happens, and not before someone's um, defroster is not working and they have a crash because they have poor visibility or run over, you know, a neighborhood child or dog or anything. Fix the problem first, and this this is just not a recall to me. It's it's a very it's kind of like a customer satisfaction program that's favorable to the manufacturer prevents them from having to replace all of the crappy parts that they've put on cars until there's an actual failure. So, and they know that some of their owners, well, lucid owners may be not less so than others, but they know some of their owners may not even complain about the problem or may not even take any action. And that's going to save them money as well. So this is a really bad recall remedy, not something that I, I think we ever want to see again. Yeah, I think this just comes down to Lucid saying, uh, we don't have a lot of money left. And we realize that most of these people bought this car and they're just kind of like putting it on the equivalent of cement blocks in their front yard because uh, we've recalled all of them twice. Have they recalled all of the vehicles twice? I know they have. Uh, I know they did for some of the battery uh, failure issues. They were having a lot of loss of power. Well, I mean, you don't, it's an electric vehicle. What a battery, who cares? But look, they're funded by the Saudis. So they've got an endless source <laughs> of oil coming out of the ground and being sold to fund their electric vehicle operations. So I'm not too worried about that. When, when I buy a Lucid Air, does it come with a bone saw? Oh, is that too dark? Sorry. That's really dark. Yeah. Well, oh, last is one. Exact, is that a Khashoggi reference? That's, yes. that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Bone yeah, saw and acid. Yeah. 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 Well, you know. So are you uh, suggesting that lucid owners may not be lucid? Aha, there we go. They're not getting enough air. <laughs> All right, let's enough of this nonsense. We got one last one. This is uh Alfa Romeo, right? They're still my cars. Yeah. Uh, this is an investigation. The Office of Defects Investigation has received 12 complaints and multiple field reports alleging uh incidents of stall, loss of motive power due to a fuel pump issue. 
Um, when does an investigation become a recall? It's generally dependent on the manufacturer. I mean, I think before most investigations are opened, you know, I, I don't believe NHTSA just opens them out of the blue without communicating with the manufacturer. I, I think they say, hey, look, guys, we're seeing a lot of incidents with this. We've got a complaint here that, you know, we, we've seen a crash involved. And, you know, we think that your low pressure fuel, fuel pump is is failing on these vehicles. And Alfa Romeo comes back and says, well, we, we don't really see a problem there. And it says, well, we're going to open a recall here. So I, I think they give them at least some notice there because, you know, give them an opportunity to, to do the right thing and do a recall. Um, we, you know, here it's, it's there, you know, there, there are 12 incidents here out of 22,000 vehicles, you know, that's, you know, a fairly low rate. Um, but it's, suggests that that NHTSA has seen some reason to believe that these these fuel pumps are going to continue to fail and continue to create safety problems on the road. Um, so th I expect that they're going to they haven't it's just been open. So NHTSA has got a lot of work to do as far as collecting information from from Chrysler who, who built these vehicles. And then we'll see how the investigation progresses over the next few months, maybe years. All right, well, with that, folks, make sure to get your recalls taken care of, wear your seatbelts, and as always, donate and donate again to the Center for Auto Safety. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. <clears throat> for more information, visit www.autosafety.org.